Well, today, as we continue with our study of the book of Acts that we began at the beginning of this year, and then also as we use that study again today to develop this great big transformational idea that life for the believer in Jesus is mission, we come to Acts chapter 16, and with it to the reality that this mission that we're on of taking the gospel mercies of Jesus and the gospel message of Jesus to the world in which we live is a mission that, and the next word matters, requires, and I say that it matters because it's mandatory language. It's not optional. It requires us at times to make what I'm going to call willful acts of sacrifice. And here's what I mean by that. The mission comes to us at times and it says, all right, here's the deal. For the sake of the mission, for the glory of Christ, that the world might know his mercy and his message, all right, you're just going to have to do something that you would never otherwise do. Or you're going to have to say something that you would never otherwise say. It would be awkward. It would be weird. It's just going to be odd. And you're going to feel ostracized. Yeah, do it. You're going to have to go somewhere that is not exactly on your bucket list. You know, like you want to see Venice and and you want to go to Rome and you want to go to Vienna and you want to go to Haiti, right? Because that's on the bucket list. It's not. Or is it? For the mission, perhaps. And to give things that the entirety of the world comes to you and says, no, 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 you keep that for yourself. The mission that we're on requires willful acts of sacrifice, but they're willful acts of sacrifice that we don't merely do out of duty. So it's not like, well, I'm a Christian, so I guess I have to do this, or I have to go here, or I have to give this, or I have to say these things. It's not something we do begrudgingly or out of duty or, boy, I wish I didn't have to. And it's something that we do out of privilege. It's something that we do out of joy. And here's the reason we can do these things joyfully, though they are costly and even though they are painful. We can do them joyfully because God takes these things and out of them he brings life just like he did with Jesus. Listen, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus Christ endured the agony of the cross. What is the joy that was set before him? It was your eternal life. It was you. And so it is with us. The mission requires willful acts of sacrifice, and God takes them and he brings life through them, to people in our family, to people in our office, to people in our school, to people in our city, to people in our social circle, to people in this world as well. And I want you to look for that sacrifice and life as we look into this story today. We pick up our study today in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, where we find Paul and Silas. And again, now they're off on the second, Paul's second missionary journey, but now they've been joined by a couple of people. So now we find a young man named Timothy traveling with them. And we find Luke, who wrote this book of Acts, himself as a part of this story. And they're in the city of Philippi, and here's the goal in Philippi. The goal is plant a church. Leave behind, when we leave here, a worshiping community to the glory of Christ that is taking the mercies and message of Jesus to this city and ultimately beyond it. So that's the goal. Luke says this, beginning in verse 16. He says, as we were going to the place of prayer. Now, where is that? Because if you've done your personal worship this week and you read the first part of this chapter, you already know that the place of prayer was located outside the city gates and down by a river. That is where the Jewish people who lived in this largely Gentile city of Philippi would go to pray. And so also would the Gentile people who had converted to Judaism in every way but circumcision. And they would meet there and they would observe the prayer practices of the Jews. Now, why do Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy go to preach Jesus 
to that place, to that group, because they already know the Hebrew Old Testament, guys. They're already looking for the Messiah. They're the most natural people to begin with if what you're looking to form is a community that worships and serves that Messiah. And so it seems like they're going back there over and over again. That's the impression you get when you read through this chapter. And if you've read through it, you know that a woman named Lydia, for example, has already come to faith in Jesus, and that's who they're living with in Philippi. So now as they're going to go back to this place of prayer, Luke tells us that they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Here's what it actually says. It says that she had a pythonic spirit. So what is that? Because if you don't understand Greek mythology, that just doesn't mean much, and that's why they translated it a spirit of divination. But the people of Philippi understood Greek mythology very well. They thought that this woman was possessed by the spirit of the god Apollo, who was worshipped as the Pythian god, and here's the most important part. He was the god that was most commonly associated with giving oracles or prophecies about what would happen in the future, and that's what makes this girl so incredibly popular in this city. And the reason she's so incredibly popular is, if we're all honest, we all want to know what's going to happen in the future. And here's why. So we can minimize our risk and maximize our investments and comfort. Which says, what about our natural tendencies to sacrifice? What it says is that when it comes to sacrifice, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to pain and discomfort when necessary, man, that's just not something we want to sign up for. I mean, if there's like a, I'm going to sacrifice list in the back of the fellowship hall after the service, the line would be short, okay? By nature, we move away from that. And yet what we're learning is that sometimes we need to move purposefully into that because there's something more important at stake than whatever it is that we're giving away. The mission requires willful acts of sacrifice, and we ought to be able to do them joyfully, knowing that God will take them and out of them bring life. So Luke says, verse 16, as we were going to that place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a pythonic spirit by which she claimed at least to be able to tell the future, and by which she brought to her owners much financial gain by fortune-telling, but notice now what she does. It says that she followed Paul and all the rest of us around, Luke tells us, crying out, and listen to her message, she says, these men are servants of the Most High God. Now, she can speak to that with some authority because she herself is a servant of the Most Low God, okay? But the people of Philippi don't know that, which is kind of the point. They think she's saying that through the spirit of Apollo, who is a false god, who is a non-god, who is no god at all, who's a mythological being. And so she follows them around, shouting out this message, apparently over and over again, these men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you, good grief, the way of salvation. You know, and if you read through that in your personal worship this week, maybe you thought, what is going on? Because it almost sounds like she's trying to help them out, but she is most definitely not trying to help them out. It's very subtle. She's trying to take this gospel message of the true and the living God and corrupt it and pervert it. How? By claiming to have some kind of legitimate insight into this gospel of the true and the living God by means of a non-God, of of a non-entity, of a mythological being named Apollo. So she's taking God and his gospel and attaching it to the Greek pantheon of gods and to her own little demonic ministry, which is not cool at all. 
It's very crafty. It's very subtle. You know, it's funny, when you open the Bible and you begin to read the story, you get to what, like page two maybe, and you begin to read about the serpent. And what does it say about the serpent? It says, the serpent was more crafty than any other creature. Something, isn't it? There's a reason we talk about getting into God's Word. There's a reason we talk about prayerfully interacting with it. There's a reason we talk about praying, you know, Holy Spirit, we want to be in your presence. We want to come to hear your voice is the idea that we might be able to discern the craftiness of the one who would love to just come along and corrupt us. And that's what he's trying to do through this woman here. This demonically possessed slave girl, Luke tells us, followed Paul and all the rest of us around, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days until Paul had had enough. And so Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to this demonic spirit within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the demonic spirit came out of her that very hour, which if you're her is totally awesome. But if you own her, you now need to get a job. Not so awesome. And they're not excited about it, these owners. Luke says, but when her owners saw that their hope of financial gain was gone, now follow the sequence. They seized Paul and Silas, but apparently not Timothy or Luke. Okay? And they dragged, there's the other one, into the marketplace They dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they had brought them to the two magistrates of Philippi, the two civil authorities who would have ruled over this Roman colony called Philippi, that's the way that it worked, they said, here's their first accusation, these men are Jews. It's a racial accusation, isn't it? They're not yet talking about what they've done. There's an injustice happening here. I think this explains at least to some degree why they didn't grab Timothy or Luke. See, Timothy's dad was not Jewish, and Luke was entirely Gentile. They grabbed, no doubt, the two chief spokespeople, but they're going to use absolutely everything they can against them to prejudice, literally, the magistrates, and for that matter, all the rest of the city, as we're going to see here in a second, against these really good and godly and amazing men. They drag them in and they say, these men are Jews and and they are disturbing our city and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And then Luke says that the crowd that was already no doubt gathered there in what was probably the city gates where these kinds of hearings were held and were there either to do business or to have their own matters heard before these very same magistrates, hearing all of this, joined in on attacking Paul and Silas and the magistrates, however, being just and fair and reasonable men, said, look, I understand you guys are all worked up about this but we've got procedures to follow. You know, we need to really investigate this and make sure you're saying the truth and we're going to call some witnesses here and we're going to have a fair and impartial trial and we're going to, they don't do any of that. It says they tore their garments off of Paul and Silas, which means they stripped them naked publicly. And they gave orders to these guys who were called lictors. They were like the police officers. They worked at the discretion of the magistrates. They carried around, as a symbol of the authority of the magistrates to really punish you, a bundle of rods of various thicknesses, of various lengths, of various degrees of flexibility. No doubt they had their favorite ones. 
And in the center of this bundle of rods was an axe that was stuck down into the middle with the axe head sticking out, the idea being that they could even take your life if the magistrates so ordered. They stripped these guys naked. They tie their hands to a pole, and they hand them over to these guys and gave orders to them to beat them with rods, which was an absolutely brutal event. Brutal. And Luke, who sees all this, no doubt, says, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them, bloodied and battered, into a prison, ordering the jailer, who was likely a retired Roman soldier and so very well accustomed to brutality, to keep them safely. And having received this order, this jailer put them into the inner prison, which is really just Luke's way of saying into the deepest, darkest, most despairing part of this prison, and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, what are the stocks? The stocks were a means by which they would take your feet and they would spread your legs out as far as they could possibly go, like, you know, into a split, and they would pin them to wood and then leave you there to cramp up and to suffer all night, which is what they did. And what's really amazing to me about this story is that Paul and Silas chose to go through all of this willingly. And I know you want to argue because we just read the story and it sounds like they were seized and they were dragged and then they were stripped and then they were beaten and then they were, you know, like there didn't sound like there was anything voluntary in any of that. No, it was entirely voluntary, at least from the point where they were dragged before the magistrates. Because if you've read the rest of the chapter in your personal worship, you know that these guys were Roman citizens. And here's the deal. That's a difference maker. So when they appeared before the magistrate, if they wanted to interrupt this whole program, they could have said, hey, well, hang on a second. Let me show you my driver's license, if you will. Let me give to you, present to you evidence of the fact that the two of us both are Roman citizens, which was really unique. And as Roman citizens, I really understand the crowd's getting kind of carried away here, but here's the thing. You are legally obligated to, in fact, do a fair and impartial investigation. And you're going to find that, you know, we really haven't done any harm here. They're just upset because slave girl can't make them any more money. You're going to give us a fair and impartial trial. And the idea of beating us with rods is completely off the table because that was illegal. It was so brutal that Rome made it illegal for Roman citizens to be beaten with rods. And you can forget about the split and the jail and the deepest, darkest and the whole deal. But instead, they said nothing and endured it all willingly. Why? For the mission. They're in a city that is mostly not Roman citizens. It's a rare privilege. They're trying to plant a church in this city where they knew that the church they would leave behind would be primarily occupied by people who would not, when they were dragged for the cause of Christ, before this same two magistrates, before this same crowd, they wouldn't be able to exempt themselves from what followed. They would be beaten. They would be thrown into prison. And so they willingly sacrificed their legal rights to send the message to that community that they're trying to reach and the people of that city that Jesus Christ was worth all of that, that He was more valuable than their comfort and that He was more liberating than physical freedom. Sacrifice for the sake of life. 
And they did that knowingly, but not knowing that it would also end up bringing life to this jailer. For Luke says in verse 25 that at at about midnight, that is to say at the deepest, darkest, and most despairing moment of the night, in the deepest, darkest, and most despairing part of the prison, at the third hour of the watch, at the third or the start of the third watch of the night. Notice what they start to do. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. So if you're looking for sacrifice, here's another one. And this time it's a sacrifice of praise, which is what it is, you see, when you're praising God in the deepest, darkest, most despairing parts and moments of life. That's a sacrifice. These guys were not praising God because they had always wanted to be able to do a split. Seriously. They were praising God because they realized that even though they had been deprived of all of their physical freedoms and all of their comfort as well, they nevertheless were fully free. That's the way it works in Jesus. That's a powerful thought. You know, if your greatest pursuit in life, your greatest love in life, your greatest hope in life is all tied up in your career or in your status or in money or in your marriage or in your children or in some other kind of relationship, if it's tied up in your reputation or whatever, if it's tied up in anything other than Jesus, the reality is you will never really be free. Why? Because life and suffering is following you around and it is going to deprive you in the end of every single one of those things. But if your greatest love and hope and pursuit in life is Jesus, well, then no matter what happens to you in life, you're free and nothing, not even death itself, can take Him from you or you from Him. That is a really big deal, okay? And as a result, like them, you can offer praise. It's a sacrifice of praise. Even in the deepest, darkest, most despairing moments and places in life. And so Luke says that that that's what's happening. He says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And then get this, the other prisoners who were in the prison with them were listening to them. And you say, well, you know, I mean, what were they going to do, leave? I mean, you know, they're stuck there, right? I mean, this is a captive audience to be sure, but that's not why they're listening. They're listening in amazement. They're listening because of all the people on the planet They understand the conditions that Paul and Silas are in. They know what it is to be seized and dragged and unjustly charged, tried and convicted, to be stripped publicly, to be beaten, to be pinned to the wood of the stocks in a split. They know what the deepest, darkest part of the prison is like at the deepest, darkest moment of the night. And they know with great authority that there's no cause in any of that for praise. And so they're sensing and realizing that these guys belong to a God that provides a freedom, that provides a joy that transcends all of that, which is a pretty important thought. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners who were in the prison with them were listening to them. And then suddenly, in the middle of their sacrifice of praise... The beginning of that third watch of the night, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all of the doors were open, not just the ones for Paul and Silas. And everyone's, not just theirs, but everyone's bonds were unfashioned, which means, practically speaking, that they're all free to go. And none of them go. 
You have to think about that for a minute. Why did they not bust out of there? We'll talk about why Paul and Silas didn't bust out of there in a second, but what about everybody else? I think there's a sense in which these guys, these prisoners who are witnessing what's happening with Paul and Silas are so amazed and so blown away by what they're witnessing that they're thinking to themselves, okay, look, if we leave, we might not find out about this God, but we will be free physically. But if we forsake that and stay, well, then maybe we'll learn about this Jesus. And they all seem to decide, look, I'd rather stay in prison and hear about this, then leave and miss it. It's pretty remarkable. It says that the earthquake came and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfashioned, but, or unfastened. But when the brutal, cruel, and hard-hearted jailer who had treated Paul and Silas and all of these other prisoners, no doubt as well, with a lot of cruelty, woke up from his sleep as a result of this earthquake, and he came out And he saw that the prison doors were open, but he couldn't see into the prison. Why? It's midnight and it's dark in there, but it's probably lighter out where he is. So they can see him is the point. When he wakes up, he comes out and he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and is about to kill himself, supposing quite understandably that the prisoners had escaped and he was about to kill himself because he knew what would happen to him. Well, he knew what happened to Roman soldiers who lost their prisoners and he figured... This was a more merciful way to die, and it would have been. But just when he's about to take his own life, Paul, who can see him in the moonlight or whatever, he can see him outside of the darkness of the prison, cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, because, you know, Silas and I at least hung around. No, for we are all still here. And so the jailer, who is absolutely dumbfounded, called for lights, rushed into the deepest, darkest, most despairing part of the prison, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what do I need to do to be saved? And just as an aside, an important one, what does salvation through Jesus Christ bring? It brings eternal life. The mission requires willful acts of sacrifice. We can give them joyfully because we know that our God is going to take those acts of sacrifice joyfully given and use them to bring life to people like he does with this guy. I mean, if you think through the life of or this this story that we've read about this jailer, how did God bring this guy to the point where he's throwing up his hands and going, "I, I want your Jesus? He did it through the willful acts of sacrifice, first of all, of the legal rights of Paul and Silas, which landed them in his jail. Through the willful act of the sacrifice of their praise against all of their circumstances that, frankly, held the other prisoners in that jail when the doors were open and they could have left. And he did it also through the willful act of their sacrifice to forgive this man and to stay and incite everyone else in the jail to stay in order to save this guy's life. They forgave and saved the life of the guy who had cruelly abused and mistreated them. And that's a sacrifice. And this guy knew it. Didn't take long for him to compute all that. He did the math on it real quick. He knew that they had been unfairly and unjustly seized and dragged and charged, tried, convicted, stripped naked, beaten, thrown into his jail, And he knew that he had been cruel to them too, pinning their legs to the wood, 
throwing them into the worst part of the jail. He knew that they stayed to save his life because it was commonly known what would happen to him if any one of them would have left. And here's the effect. Verse 29, and when the jailer heard Paul's voice and realized that they were all still there, he called for lights because he can't believe it. He's got to see it with his own eyes. And he rushed in and seeing it all, trembling, he fell with fear down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what did they say? Well, get your life all cleaned up, and then, you know, maybe if you work on your alcoholism, and if you could stop doing this with your wife, and you know what, you you need to just be honest in the way that you do business, and you need to stop being cruel to every, you know, prisoner who comes in here, and you need to... What must I do to be saved? They say to him, in effect, look, there isn't anything you can do. That's the point of the gospel. We've all blown it and we can't go back and undo what we've done. We can't outweigh it in some magical scale in the hands of God. We can't flip back through the pages of the book of our life as we've talked about in the past and pull out the whiteout and go, hmm, you know, I think I'd like to get rid of this and this and I don't want God to have ever seen this and this. And It just doesn't work. There is only one good enough to win the favor of God, and He is Jesus. And the gospel is Jesus won God's favor for us and then offered as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world His perfect life, His perfect blood is the sacrifice that covers over all of our screw-ups, all of our sin, all of the things we'd love to white out. That's it. So what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. And in what He's done for you in His life, death, burial, and resurrection, and you will be saved. You and your household, He said, because this guy becomes a pretty quick evangelist, like he's bringing out the family as we see here. And it says, they, Paul and Silas, spoke the word of the Lord to this man and to all who were in his house, and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. So he's gone from Mr. Cruel to Mr. Compassionate. And he was baptized at once, incidentally, just throwing that out there for my Baptist friends, okay, probably at a well that was located in the city prison, which means in all likelihood that they didn't lower you all the way down into the well, but just pulled up a bucket and said, here. All right, so just throwing it out there. Something to think about. He was baptized at once, he and all his family, maybe even his little kids. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. He's not afraid that they will run. They already could have done that. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. Guys, the mission requires willful acts of sacrifice. It required that of Jesus, who himself was what? Seized, dragged, unjustly charged, tried, convicted. Do you see the pattern? Because Luke does. Stripped naked, tied to a pole and beaten for our sin. The words that Luke uses to describe how the feet were fastened to the stocks in this prison are the same words that he uses in only one other place to describe how Jesus' feet was fastened or were fastened to the wood of that cross. 
He sees the pattern. There's an earthquake in this story. Oh, you know what? There's an earthquake in that story. And as Jesus laid in the grave for three days, if you will, these guys began to rejoice and were freed at the third watch of the night. The mission requires willful acts of sacrifice. It required that of Christ. And it requires that of me. And it requires that of you. But here's the deal. Just like it was for the joy set before him of your eternal life that Jesus endured and laid down his life in sacrifice, so it is for us. It's the joy of knowing that our sovereign God takes our feeble offerings and by his Spirit, for his glory, brings life to people as we lay ourselves down. People in our family, people in our office, people in our schools, community, city, and all around the world. So with that in mind, I just want to ask you this. What sacrifice do you need to make for the kingdom, for this mission, for this Savior who gave us all for you? And here's what I've discovered. At least this is the way that it works for me. Um, I already know the answer to that. Usually God has to come and tell me 93 times what it is that I'm supposed to do. And then we come to a message like this. And, you know, early on, I'm going, it's going to be another one where this is going to be number 94. He's going to tell me again, I should have played golf. Should you or should it be a joy? Is it for your bad or is it, is it for your good? I'll throw out some options. Maybe one of them will be yours or maybe not. But who do you need to forgive? Because that is a willful act of sacrifice. And here's why. Because you've been robbed in some way by somebody. They've taken from you, haven't they? And, and you know what? You're owed. And you have a right to it. And the gospel comes to us and says, you know what? Time to get real humble. Go and forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you at a greater cost, really, than any right that you'll give up. And in doing so, emulate Jesus to a world that needs to see a people in this world who are willing to actually lay down their rights instead of fight for them and demand them. How refreshing. How startling would that be? Who do you need to seek forgiveness from? Because that too takes a sacrifice, a sacrifice of pride. And that's a hard thing to swallow. Who do you need to tell about Jesus? You know, like you know that you know that you know that, well, you're supposed to be the one to say something, but it's going to be weird. I'm not going to lie. It could be a little bit awkward. It's usually not nearly as bad as you think, but and you're worried, what are they going to think of me? How, you know, am I going to be pushy? Are they going to, you know, what, are, what are the people in my office going to think? And, and it's your time. Or maybe it's just that you need to make the sacrifice of submitting to Jesus. The sacrifice of swallowing your pride and going, hey, um, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure there are some things I can't white out. <laughs> there is a way I'm living that honestly doesn't lead to life. And I need to bring myself and my sin to Christ and be forgiven and become His. What addiction or sin or habit or lifestyle do you need to begin to proactively address? Proactively address in community with other people. We live for Christ in community. We raise our kids in community. We do marriage in community. We do life in community. God gives us His Word and His Spirit and His people. 
that we might live rightly for Him. What sacrifice of your time? I throw that out there because I've mentioned personal worship a number of times on purpose. And I think, I, I think that a lot of us look at that and go, you know, I don't have any time for that. And, and I want to say, spiritually speaking, there's a, there's a sense in which that's like saying, you know, I don't have time to breathe. I'm really busy, so this whole air in and out thing, I, I don't have any time for that. Or I don't have time to eat, or I don't have time to drink water or, you know, hydrate. I don't have time to... It's a big deal. What sacrifice of your talent that you've been using wholly for you but that you know God is calling you to use for His mission too. Do you need to make what sacrifice of your treasure? The taboo topic that nobody wants to hear. Why doesn't anybody want to hear? Because we cling to it. We cling to it as if life is found in it. And it isn't. It's not. It's a very disappointing little God. And so the very not disappointing big God who gave His Son for you and impoverished Himself to come into this world that He might make you rich in all the ways that matters, comes to you and says, hey, you need to worship me with this for your good and for the good of this mission. So bottom line, what do you need to do that, you know, honestly, you just otherwise, there was a sign-up sheet, pretty much no. Or say, or go or give. Because the mission requires willful acts of sacrifice. And it's a joyful thing, guys, to give them. For out of them, after the pattern of Christ, our God brings life. Let there be life. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for the ultimate act of generosity that has ever been known, the act in which, Lord, you, in the person of Jesus Christ, clothe yourself in our humanity to chase down a bunch of people who were running fast and hard and purposefully away from you. Lord, to make clean a people who know only how to make themselves dirty. To bring to yourself a people who had no inclination to be brought into your family on their own. To bring to life a people who were spiritually dead and engaged in death. To call a people out of this world for your glory and for your son and for your mission. God, speak to us about Jesus Hold Him before us and call us to Him that we might in Him find, first of all, forgiveness and life, and then beyond that, satisfaction and meaning and purpose and mission. And make clear to us, each one, what we are to do or what we are to say or where we are to go or what we are to give joyfully that others too might find the life that we found in Christ. Do these things, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.